Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, why plans for budget savings may hit military reservists. They are a critical component to how our armed forces operate. So to hear that they could be reduced and training could be curtailed um, is very sad indeed. We speak to the chair of the Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood. What are the challenges facing NATO? We speak to the Chief of Staff at the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps. It, it's a much less certain world uh, and the, the neatness in a way of uh, reaction, counter-reaction, escalation, um, I think no longer holds true. And what role was played by army logistics experts over the pandemic? We didn't have sufficient stockpiles. And of course, any that uh, that we did have were, were quickly consumed. So uh, I think the sourcing, the procurement became the uh, initial challenge. We speak to Major General Simon Hutchings, Director, Joint Support at UK Strategic Command. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitrap. But first, the Defence Secretary is in the process of agreeing in-year savings with service chiefs in the latest attempt to tackle the MOD's budget black hole. Even Conservative estimates place the gap at more than £7 billion. Ben Wallace is looking to claw back £1 billion of that in the next 12 months. It comes less than a month after Boris Johnson set out a £16.5 billion increase to the MOD's budget over the next four years. The cuts include Royal Navy reservists being suspended and training days for British Army reserves being scaled back. Well, after the story was reported in The Telegraph yesterday, I spoke to the chair of the Commons Defence Committee, Conservative MP, Tobias Elwood. Well, uh, we had great news last week uh, to see the defence budget increase. And there was concerns that without that, then we wouldn't be able to meet our operational requirements. And also the expansion of capabilities beyond Army, Air Force, Navy, into the areas of cyber and space. So to now hear that there may be threats to the size of our reservist force and indeed to training hours is very concerning indeed. I've just come from the chamber where there was much talk about our commitment to Mali, to the Sahel, joining other nations to try try and find some peace and stability there. When we do these operations, we infill from our reservists. There's not an operation that I've been on when I served where there wasn't the regular forces made up by reservists. They are a critical component to how our armed forces operate. So to hear that they could be reduced and training could be curtailed um, is very sad indeed. Yeah, and the concerns you have over the reservists, they're taking the brunt of the cuts. Um, How will they be affected? Well, we're waiting for the details. We're trying to press the government to provide clarity because there's nothing worse than these rumours coming out which ripple right across the military fraternity of people unsure as to how it might affect them. In addition to that, there's also questions over uh, the Sentry, uh, E3 Sentry uh, surveillance aircraft, which are going to be replaced by Wedgetail. This may be taken out of service early to try and save some money before Wedgetail has then come in. Now, we know that our skies are forever being uh, threatened by Russian aircraft. This is not the time to let down our guard. Mm-hmm. You've been a minister at the MOD. They aren't easy decisions, are they? How will Ben Wallace decide what else needs to be cut? Well, Ben Wallace and, and the ministers need to know that people like myself and other parliamentarians, if we're given the clarity of those decisions, then we can help make the case to say this is where our defence budget should be spent. This is why it actually must be protected. And to some, some degree, we were successful in that, which in the way we had the multi-year spending round announcement, 
where there was a generous um, uh, agreement that was reduced, uh, produced in the last couple of weeks. If we need to make the case again, then absolutely so be it. But don't let's just make this announcement and then everybody then have to live with it. And as the chair of the Defence Select Committee, you heard from the MOD Permanent Secretary, Sir Stephen Lovegrove, just this week, and you made the case that cuts to personnel are not the answer. It's not at all. I mean, there is there are some challenges to recruitment. There's no doubt about it. Actually, it's not recruitment, it's retention, which is the biggest thing. We've got people coming through the door, but it's wanting to keep them, particularly when they get to the slightly higher ranks of sergeant, colour sergeant and so forth, or engineer, that's when you don't want to lose them because they've accumulated the necessary skills. So looking after the welfare, the families and so forth, the accommodation, these are all important things which help people say, right, I'm willing to stay on for a bit longer. Do you feel you've got a fight on your hands? I think we do. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely, we recognise every single Whitehall department is going to be knocking on the Chancellor's door saying, I want more money, particularly in these difficult times. But I make the case that... The first duty of any government is security of our nation. And our world is getting more complex and more dangerous. And we need the personnel to keep us safe. And with this new financial settlement, what are the new challenges for defence in 2021? Well, that's a really good question, which hopefully we'll get the answer to in January and February. That ultimately is what the integrated review is all about. Three questions there. The first is, uh, you know, what is our place in the world? What are our ambitions? Second question is, what are the threats that we face? And then the third one is, how do you design your defence posture accordingly? Well, we've had the money to say, let's spend more on defence. We're still waiting for the answers for those first two questions. Until we get that, we actually won't know where the, what the government's priorities are. Tobias Elwood. Well, I'm joined now by Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the defence think tank, RUSI. Uh, Michael, a defence source is quoted saying these are difficult and necessary decisions and the MOD can't shy away from the scale of its financial problems. Yes, I think that's true. The, uh, you know, the, the so-called black hole in the, in the budget, it's not 13 billion, as a lot of the press said. It's something between six or seven and 13 billion, depending on you know, what happens in the next 10 years and uh, what the MOD does or doesn't do about it. So they do have to address a financial problem. And, and more than that, you see, they've got to show that the, this extra cash that was very, um, uh, very prominent in the headlines, a lot of, it sounded like a lot of money, 16 billion, it's not quite that much in cash terms but nevertheless it's a big uh, amount of extra spending they've got to show that that money is not going to be spent on things that where the MOD is just trying to catch up on equipment that they've deferred or or uh, deficits that they've got they've got to prove that that money is going to be spent on transformational forces which is what it's really all about and so they the the MOD have, have are demonstrating really that they are trying to save money where they can at the edges and as Tobias Elwood says it's very debilitating to reduce the the, uh, the role of the reserves or to actually put them on in storage for six months or their operations in storage. That's very bad. But the MOD is trying to find savings, immediate savings of about a billion because they've got to do that anyway and they mustn't spend the new money on those old problems. Yes, and Tobias Elwood also mentioned UK troops in Mali there. The Defence Secretary made a statement in the Commons yesterday, 300 troops in this peacekeeping deployment. What do we know about their mission? 
Yes, they're part of the uh, the UN mission. Is, uh, uh, the MINUSMA, which is the uh, UN mission. We, who, the, the title of it is far longer than the, the, this program has got time for. But let's just call it the <laughs> MINUSMA mission. And uh, that's nothing to do with counterterrorism. The French are there in a counterterrorist role. We're helping the French with air support, um, logistic air support. This is nothing to do with that. This is to help the United Nations. So 250 of those troops will be blue helmets. 50 of them are purely national and they are a support force. They're just literally to make sure that the 250 can do their job. So it's 300 in total. And they're going to do the reconnaissance. They're doing the recce for the UN forces. Now, nobody else has done the recce. Uh, it doesn't exist as a role, so the, U the UK has taken on the most challenging side of it. And what they say, they're going to be based at Gao, which is not the safest place in the world in Mali. Mm. Um, and they're going to build up from there, working outwards, as it were, to act as a recce force for the UN troops. Uh, Michael, last night the Defence Secretary welcomed a decision from the International Criminal Court in The Hague that it will not take action against the UK over allegations of war crimes by British forces in Iraq between 2003 and 2011. Yes, this is a really difficult one. Their remit at the International Criminal Court is only to act if a government is unwilling or unable to do it itself. And, and, and they're saying, look, the British government is not unwilling and it's not unable to do this. But the fact that there is still credible evidence of a few cases, not that many, but some really, really nasty evidence in a few cases, indicates that the problem that the criminal court is pointing to is not that the government is trying to hide anything, but that the system that the Brits operate is not good enough at gathering evidence in theatre at the time of an alleged offence. And some of us have been saying this for a long time. It's not a law problem, it's a procedure problem within the military, which the chiefs only partly recognise, I think, that we don't do a good enough job collecting material at the time when we need to collect it. And that's what the ICC ruling is really pointing to. Well, Ben Wallace said it vindicates the UK's efforts to pursue justice where allegations have been founded. The ICC says it has reason to believe war crimes were committed, but it could not determine whether the UK had acted to shield soldiers from prosecution. Michael, this is a legal ruling on a long-running issue. Yes, it is, and it's not going to go away because the ICC is saying that we think that there is serious evidence which uh, indicates that war crimes may have been committed. They're not saying definitely that war crimes were committed, but that they may have been. And that the, the, that the British system has done all it can on the evidence it's got, but that that evidence is not good enough. And so it's up, in a sense, to those who think that they may be victims of these crimes or alleged crimes, uh, it's up to them then to keep on pursuing it. So I think the MOD, um, although it will be grateful for this uh, outline ruling from the ICC, will find that it has to answer questions on these issues repeatedly in coming years. Michael, stay with us. How has NATO's Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, known as ARC, evolved in the 25 years since its deployment to Bosnia as part of the NATO-led implementation force? That question was discussed this week at the defence think tank RUSI with its former commander in Bosnia, the then-General Sir Michael Walker, and the current commander, Lieutenant General Sir Edward Smith Osborne. ARC, which is based in Gloucestershire, has recently been put on 20 days' notice to move anywhere in the world. It's the first time NATO has maintained a core-level headquarters quarters at high readiness since the end of the Cold War. I asked Major General John Meade, the Chief of Staff at ARC, how it had changed tactically and strategically since it was first set up. I think one of the changes recently from a NATO perspective um, is the, the, the neat assumptions about 
threats and escalation and deterrence uh, have changed. It, it's a much less certain world, uh, and the the neatness, in a way, of uh, reaction, counter reaction, escalation. Um, I think no longer holds true, and we, we saw that uh, with the surprises in the Donbass and in the Crimea in, in Ukraine, and, and I think we've seen the the resolve that that has engendered with across NATO since, in terms of the forward presence of um, enhanced forward presence into the Baltics and, and Poland, and I, I think a reinvigorated approach, a national uh, NATO military strategy, new NATO military strategy. Uh, and I think a, a, a much more nuanced approach to how we view modern deterrence. So, yes, to, to, to concentrate on credible warfighting ability, which I think is, you know, arcs, raison d'etre, but also to be uh, more agile in the way that we deploy forward, um, that we constantly engage and train and support across the alliance. and. You know, we're going to be to all four corners of Europe um, again and, and in the US in the coming year to, to reinforce those kind of effects. You paint a picture of, of a changing situation and you talk about having to be more agile. What does that actually mean practically? I, I think it's, that's a good question. I think the, the first point is that we need to be uh, able to operate across domains and and, and by when I say domains I mean air uh, maritime land but also space and cyber in a much more advanced and sophisticated way and increase because just the rate of change is, is is so significant so first of all our command and control uh, has has got to develop and develop at pace, which which is one of our you know particular focus areas to transform command and control, so that we are adept across those domains, uh, and also that bridges in a way we are a tactical headquarters that but that we are able to fit into the strategic context that we are uh, we are able to support a national and alliance efforts in strategic communications um, and and the like. So it's it, what it, I hoped I paint a picture of is is that more multifaceted aspect of command and control uh, that is that is quick enough um, to re, to respond and then agile enough to work across those domains to be able to where we need to to really concentrate effect concentrate our efforts. And you have permanent staff from more than twenty nations contributing. What impact does that diversity have on operations? Well, I, I, it's that key effect of strength of the alliance. And it's the, the, the you know the Churchill quote comes to mind that you know the only thing worse than working in an alliance is not working in an alliance, and it brings us enormous strength. So, and what, by that I mean tongue in cheek, we need to build consensus. We need to make sure that we align national positions, but at the same time, it it brings us such diversity of both capability, military capability, also diversity of, of thought, um, and also links into, you know, those 21 great nations, and more broadly, the 30 nations of NATO, uh, with, with all that that brings in terms of our posture, uh, our ability to respond, and our ability i think which is which is deeply powerful to present a united front militarily but also politically and just briefly 25 years on what would your assessment of the arc be today well first of all it's, i mean it's a it's a wonderful team that we aspire to be 
the sum of our parts and I really feel that, that we are we've just been on exercise and and made that work through covid difficult but we've made we've made it work and I think it just shows the determination uh, as it was in Sarajevo and Bosnia 25 years ago, as it is today, really, it is that aspect of, of the strength of the alliance, which, which is really, really rather wonderful and humbling to be a part of. That was Major General John Mead there. And you can find the recording of the seminar at www.forces.net forward slash Bosnia 25. Uh, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, that interview gives us a flavour of the challenges facing NATO, doesn't it? Yes, um, we're looking really at the changing character of, of conflict because, as uh, the Major General was saying there, you know, we, we live now in an era of hyper-competition um, and constant competition. So the great powers that um, uh, you know, oppose us, Russia, China, to a degree, uh, Iran, and even North Korea to some extent, they, they're competing all the time on every level across everything that they can do, from information and cyber warfare right through to military competition, and in the case of using mercenaries to operate in, in areas that matter to us in a, a very informal way. So we're living in a, in a world in which there is no clear boundary anymore between war and peace. And uh, the military have to accept that, in a sense, they're at very low-level war all the time. And the ARC, uh, the Rapid Reaction Corps in NATO, is the one part of NATO that is constantly operational, that can work all the time and does work all the time. And, and as, we're, as we're seeing, it needs to be able to deploy uh, on a daily basis in cyberspace, in terms of information warfare, in terms of preparation and so on. It's quite a, it's a big conceptual change and this is the one part of NATO that is really militarily effective. Mm, a really good speech to you today. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time. The Army Senelager Ranges in Germany, which until last year was the main training ground for 20th Armoured Infantry Brigade, have been echoing to the sound of tanks again, but not British ones. As Rob Olver reports, it's now Germany's main battle tank, the Leopard 2, that's making its presence known. On Britain's Senelager Ranges, a German Leopard 2 unleashes its firepower. The tank's 120mm smoothbore cannon has a reputation for pinpoint accuracy. 203rd Panzer Battalion reservists have come here from their nearby base in Augustdorf. Company commander Major Stefan Zehner says the British Rangers are ideal for gunnery camps where the objective is to gain qualifications. The facility is conveniently close to their base, he says, and well suited to helping crews learn and understand procedures. The British Army's last fighting units to be stationed in Germany left last year. Since then, the German Bundeswehr's presence in Senelager has increased. The facility is now a showcase for one of the world's top-selling main battle tanks, or German heavy metal, as Bundeswehr soldiers like to call their Leopard 2s. The Rangers are still British-run, but agreements guarantee the Germans training time for at least 10 weeks a year. That includes giving reservist tank crews a chance to practice infantry skills. This is now my... 
Corporal Lucas Van Oberbaker says it's only his sixth day on the training area until now he was in another battalion in East Germany. So far, so good, he says. We can do what we're trained to do. It's an extensive area that's useful and convenient. What's also convenient is a mobile shop that few Bundeswehr soldiers have seen before. The NAFI has been supplying refreshments to British troops for a hundred years. A mobile shop is something the Germans seem to like. Their reaction the first time I pulled up on the range and opened the side door was uh, in awe. NAFI mobile shop manager Frank Arcus. They don't get anything like this, especially with hot food and all the, the service that we provide. They're very interested, yeah. But it's Germany's main battle tank that is also certain to be seen more often here. Three years ago, there were barely 200 Leopard 2s in the German army. Soon, there are expected to be more than 300. Rob Olver reporting from Germany there. BSBS, the forces station. This is Sitrep. Over the last few months of the COVID pandemic, there's been cooperation between civilian and military planners and logistics experts in areas such as the delivery of PPE, testing and now the rollout of the vaccine programme. A recent seminar hosted by the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport heard from experts from across defence, wider government and industry about the challenges faced and lessons learned. Well, Major General Simon Hutchings, Director Joint Support at UK Strategic Command's Defence Support Organisation, has over 30 years experience as a military logistician. I caught up with him this week and asked whether he remembered the moment when he realised how key a role the military would play. Uh, yes, Kate, I can, because it coincides with um, with my arrival into post. Uh, this is a newly created post, part of defence support. So it was uh, just a couple of days before the 1st of April when it was then apparent that the, uh, the first wave COVID pandemic was going to require some military support as part of the, the overall uh, civil authority requirement. The seminar brought together people from defence with other departments and industry. You looked at three areas, resilience, procurement of personal protective equipment, PPE, and logistic delivery. What was the biggest challenge? Well, I think um, initially, and I'll talk from a, a military perspective first, I think the, the challenge initially was, uh, was PPE, and that was replicate across the country, I think. What stockpiles we did have were more focused on a sort of flu pandemic need, not the uh, not the virus that became COVID, of course. So uh, we didn't have sufficient stockpiles. And of course, any that, uh, that we did have were, were quickly consumed. So I think the sourcing, the procurement became the initial challenge, not least because, of course, the, the whole of the, the global supply chain was trying to place demands on a very limited number of suppliers. And uh, of course, market forces took over and, and, you know, it started to silt up, if, if that makes sense. So the, uh, the supply chain started to slow down and we had to work extra hard to be able to get those uh, secured supplies. So is it fair to say that, that really was the most challenging moment right at the beginning? Yeah, I, I think so, because it was very evident that, you know, particularly from an MOD perspective, you know, we were seeing increasing demands placed on our system. Uh, and then as I was turning to uh, our delivery partner to look at what the art of the possible was on the supply side, it was clear that we didn't have enough. So, you know, once we saw the magnitude of the demand, we then had to work with uh, MOD Maine 
to work out what the relative prioritisation of that demand looked like from their perspective, uh, as well as a blend of the medical clinical priority as well. So it was operational and medical clinical priorities trying to be blended. As a military man, I'm sure making those kinds of decisions and putting those priorities in place it c- comes fairly naturally in your in your DNA. What was it like working with your new civilian partners? Yeah, well, one of the lessons that I that I talked to at the seminar was the importance of enduring relationships. And I think you know we have a first class supplier in Team Lidos. Uh, we've outsourced much of the MOD's fulfilment operations, so the procurement the storage and the distribution is now done by a delivery partner Uh, and they're five years into a 13-year contract so we already have established relationships and and they pay dividends you know when we really became uh, under pressure both parties we were able to you know sort of work through the difficulties that were manifest uh, to achieve the outcomes that we needed for defense and what do you think are the biggest lessons learned i've had a a number of lessons really and i again i talked to some of these in the seminar the first is data and data accessibility, you know, we were stymied to a great extent because we've got some quite ancient and, uh, and long in the tooth uh, logistic information systems in defence. And so it was very difficult to extract the data and present it into, the, into MOD main to be able to make some dynamic decisions around those relative priorities. So that would be my first takeaway, the importance of data accessibility. The second I just talked to, and that was relationships, the, the other that I talked to was the, the balance between uh, effective and efficient, uh, and, and the corollary to that is, is resilient. So too often in designing and creating supply chains, we focus on the efficiency aspect of it, rather than having sufficient resilience to make it effective during times of crisis. So, you know, we're looking again at whether we've got the balance of that right, ultimately. I would also offer the skills of our people you know, logistics as a profession hasn't always been as valued as I think it ought to be. And, you know, we found ourselves in many cases one brick deep um, in terms of the skill sets required to do the intricacies of demand planning and procurement and the supply side operation. And these are the skills, of course, that we've had to mobilise in support of the, the wider government effort and the thickening that the military has provided into some of the government departments as well. And where do you think in future the lessons learned will be useful? Yeah, so I think um, you know, there are some particular you know, COVID-related lessons that, that we talked to at our seminar last week, but, but there are some enduring ones as well. And many of those that I've just, uh, I've just outlined, I would contend, are enduring. So you know, the demand changes and the, the, the challenge you know, is dynamic. But, but some of these enduring lessons are, are resonant for, for pretty much all military operations. You know, the importance of data, the importance of relationships, visibility, you know, the ability to plan. Um, you, you know, they are all enduring. So we are doubling down on some of these, uh, these lessons and ensuring that they stick, uh, you know, going forward. Major General Simon Hutchings there. This is Sidrep.
A building that is both a museum and a memorial to US airmen who fought and died in World War II has been awarded a Grade 2 listing. The American Air Museum at Duxford in Cambridgeshire contains the Imperial War Museum's collection of US military aircraft and was opened in 1997. Emily Charles is the Imperial War Museum's curator for the American Air Museum at Duxford. So the American Air Museum is rather architecturally interesting especially compared to the rest of the Duxford landscape it's sort of a great big arch of concrete a bit shaped like a shell uh, and it has this fabulous glass wall uh, which overlooks Duxford airfield so it's very impressive architecturally and inside you have our collection of aircraft which is um, we have 19 historic US military aircraft on display and we believe that's the largest collection of US military aircraft on public display outside the United States. And the listing includes the glass sculpture Counting the Cost. Tell us more about that. Yes, so Counting the Cost was a sculpture designed to go with the building and was unveiled alongside the building in 1997. It's by the artist Renato Nemes, who has an interest in military subjects and commemoration. And Counting the Cost consists of 52 glass panels, each with aircraft symbols on them, which represent aircraft that were lost on operations over Europe uh, during the Second World War. Now, across those 52 panels, there's just over 7,000 aircraft on there. And if you think that some of those, particularly the heavy bombers, contained up to 10 men, that is a huge amount of people who were involved in aircraft crashes and a huge amount of aircraft that were lost during the Second World War. And what does the listing mean for you? So it's very exciting. Um, The minimum age for a site to be listed is about 30 years and the American Air Museum's actually younger than this. So that's very exciting. It also helps us to recognise the historic importance of this building and of Duxford's site as a whole. Duxford was an American fighter base during the Second World War and the American Air Museum tells part of that story. So it's really important to have that recognition that this is an important part of British history, even though it is so closely connected to the Americans. Emily Charles. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks to all of my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you can never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.